I'm going to be very candid with you. We are living in a computer program. Welcome, everyone, to Simulation Nation, your portal to all things virtual. I'm your host, Johnny Android, and I'm here to keep you informed about all that's happening in the metaverse. We record our episodes live in Allspace every week, and you can join us from your PC or VR headset. Just log into Allspace, join our Simulation Nation channel, and teleport in to offer your opinion, question, or whatever else. Today, we are going back to the origin story of the metaverse itself with Snow Crash, a seminal novel that coined the term metaverse, which sort of seems like a hot topic these days. So it's a perfect timing for this. Uh, written uh, back in 1992 by visionary author Neil Stevenson, Snow Crash follows hero protagonist who must crack the code of a mysterious computer program that hacks the minds of whoever reads it. Plunging headlong into the metaverse with me is none other than master of the metaverse, Futurosity. How's it going, Futurosity? Hey, thank you for having me. <laughs> hey, guys. Great to be here. Great to be here. We've got Rachel and Kurt and uh, Jada and Dave the Turner and Leah Lu uh, Luis. And let's not forget our bot himself, Hero Protagonist. So for anyone who has wondered how this guy came up with his name, you are about to find out. Everyone thinks that he got it from Snow Crash, but the truth of the matter is that Snow Crash got it from Hero. Hero is 100 years old. He's from a different dimension. Obviously, Neil Stevenson had some kind of contact with Hero along the way and then used it to name his uh, protagonist's story. But that's the truth that I'm sticking to it. Uh, so Hero's here also. <laughs> oh, excellent. Excellent indeed. Yeah, so I have to, I have to say, Futurosity, that we are on, I think this is episode 84 or something like that. We do one a week, episode 84. Ever since episode one, I have been dying to do Snow Crash. And nobody, I've, I've asked like a half a dozen people, no one would do it. No one would sit down and read this really thick, super technical novel. Uh, <laughs> and then you uh, came along, Futurosity, and saved the day. So we're not worthy. We're not worthy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> It was well worth my time, I'll tell you. Very that. cool, yeah. It's a great reread. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting also because the words metaverse uh, really weren't in the lexicon even, like, it feels like six months ago. Am I insane to think that the, we just started calling virtual reality the metaverse in the last six months? Um, and I have a theory about this, of course. I think that uh, the, in the lead-up to Facebook changing its name to Meta, it was releasing articles and and sort of surreptitious uh, posts on social media talking about the metaverse and amping up everyone's uh, familiarity with that word so that when they launched meta, everyone would know what they were doing. Oh, I have no doubt. You could literally look at the Google search trends and you'll just see that chart going up, up, up after a certain point last year. Yeah, metaverse became part of the lexicon out of the blue. I mean, only, you know, the true nerds really thought of it as a, a term, but now it's CNN, Fox, all the major news channels are talking about the metaverse. So that's really amazing how within a matter of months, now we all have a better understanding of this future technology. It's in our hands. Yeah, almost. absolutely. So I want to take a quick poll here. For those of you who are here, we used to call it virtual reality. Now we're we're calling it metaverse. Which do you prefer? So give me an emoji if you prefer using the term virtual reality. Okay, Rachel, Rachel, and who, uh, maybe Kurt too, who prefers the term metaverse? And we got, we got Dave the Turner and Luis looks like he's trying to do that as well. So that's interesting. We're sort of split down the middle. What do you think, Futurosity? 
Well, I kind of see it as a change in the thought process because you think of the metaverse as a place. You know, we have two different kinds of lives. Now, when you think of virtual reality, virtual reality sounds like more of a replacement versus metaverse, which is more of a, a community that's always active that you could jump in and out of at your choice. So I, I go with metaverse. I think that's a, you know, the better term that's been coined. At this yeah, point. you know, I happen to agree. Virtual reality is a lot. It sort of like stumbles across your tongue. It doesn't come out as easily. Metaverse is just so smooth and nice. And it kind of, it makes you feel like it's a place that you go to as opposed to virtual reality is sort of this abstract idea. So I kind of like the idea of metaverse as well. I really hope that uh, Facebook or Meta doesn't, isn't able to appropriate, uh, you know, the use of that term and everyone thinks it's synonymous <laughs> with them because that would be a real shame. We, I, I hope for an open source metaverse, as I'm sure all of you do as well. So, uh, you know, let's let's all, all of us build it together, something like that. And then, of course, Kurt says, how about the meshverse? Well, hmm, interesting meshverse. I, you know, I guess because of the mesh technology that's in Altspace, uh, that's Microsoft's new technology that they're trying to build out this uh, uh, something else. Meshverse, is it going to catch on? I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> Ah, that doesn't roll <laughs> off the tongue. Meshverse, meshverse. Yeah, that's the thing. Metaverse is very clear. That sharp T, the meta. It's just, I mean, Facebook was brilliant changing our name. I mean, they really did seek out the future. I mean, 2017, people said VR is going to be a failure. Hey, now it's 2022, and the metaverse is now a, a concept a lot of regular people know yeah, about. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, let's let's dive into the novel here, which, of course, uh, like I said, coined the term metaverse back in 1992. We'll start with overall thoughts. Um, why don't you go first and just tell me, you know, the TLDR of what you thought of the novel in general? Well, overall, I have great memories. I, mean, I read this book in the 90s, oh, wow. you know, like right out of high school. So I, it was one of my early cyberpunk readings. But the funny thing is, it was the first time that I thought of it as more of like possibly a, a satirical cyberpunk novel. Because a lot of times it was cyberpunk is usually a little on a you know straight, hard, you know, neo-noir kind of thing going. And it suddenly have this funny situation happening where you're discovering, hey, this is how the future is most likely going to be. I mean, the issues that we dealt with in the 90s, you know, the suburban enclaves, mm. all those issues with, you know, housing discrimination from racism to issues of the poor, none of it's really changed. Mm. So that's the funniest thing about this book. It's so prescient to modern times because with all these technological changes, we still have inflation. <laughs> Our money's not as valuable as mm -hmm. it used to be. And people are jacking into another world to have a slightly better life. So overall, I, it was a fun reading. It just reminded me how you know thoughtful it was of the future. Now, of course, you know, science fiction isn't fortune telling. So of course, there's a lot of things that are a little bit off compared to Neil Stevenson's 21st century. So but, far, yeah, either way, <laughs> it's closer than ever. So, so far, far, you never know. Um, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So, so I have, I have mine, mine sort of breaks into two categories here. One is the ideas, the philosophical thoughts, the technological um, uh, world that Neil Stevenson created, and then the storytelling. Right. And so if you're talking about the technology, he sort of, like you said, extrapolated on the problems of the nineties, but have become so much, it's almost a lot of it was sort of fortune telling, the idea that there's this metaverse, the idea that he kind of took what, so if you go back to the original cyberpunk novel, Neuromancer, right? William Gibson created the term cyberspace. And in that they would hack into this abstract space of lights 
and basically zeros and ones. Like there was nothing real about it. So the the thing that really Niels Davison did here is he brought a tangible uh, sort of realistic avatar uh, um, informed metaverse world that kind of is is not abstract it's actually you can walk down streets you can talk to people and all that kind of stuff so that for in itself uh is incredible that he did that back in 1992 um and then a lot of the other ideas that he's playing with the idea of an avatar yeah he talks about avatar it was used before he used it but he sort of popularized it with this book um and then a lot of the anarcho-capitalist ideas that he deals with are really fascinating. So for that stuff, this book is insanely uh, readable. And the first third of the book really delves into all that. For me, where it really falls short is the storytelling aspect. It's like there's no real um, stakes to the plot. There's no real purpose. There's no real goal that Hero has as he's driving through this world. And not only, not only that, but it, it kind of gets splintered into a, a dual protagonist story where you've got YT, who uh, is called Yours Truly, on one hand, and then you've got Hero on the other. And Hero gets so bogged down in a bunch of really esoteric, ancient, historical stuff with Sumerian culture and all of that, that YT kind of goes off and does her thing. But there's no real... Um, I didn't feel like there was real stakes and I didn't feel like there was real urgency to solve the problem of the world, which is this idea of a snow crash, which we'll get into in a second. So for me, um, it, you know, Neil Stevenson, I love him as a writer. He's absolutely brilliant genius when it comes to technological uh, uh, forethought and, and sort of inventing these ideas that no one had really put together in the way that he has before. But I think he's gotten better as a storyteller over time and this is one of his earlier novels where i don't think that this storytelling really holds up so that's sort of where i sit that's the tldr everyone could <laughs> if anyone has any uh, opinions about this please <laughs> please do uh throw up your overall thoughts as well if dave the turner if you've read it or Jeanette or tom or, or anybody otherwise we'll just keep barreling along but use the raise hand option to uh let us know your opinion and we will definitely uh take that um all right, so uh, let's let's keep going here. Uh, so usually, you know, if you've been to one of our events, we talk about the plot first. But as I just mentioned, the plot was a little underwhelming to me. And really, where it all starts is the world. And and in my opinion, the first third of the book is literally just world building. Like, there's literally nothing that's a that's a singular plot that is a through line that we're following what he's doing is creating this incredibly rich technological future that takes place in los angeles and somehow in the 21st century um do you so i i can sort of start to start to tackle some of the things that i think are really interesting and then maybe i'll, I'll let you jump in a little bit oh please so please. so for me the the setup of the world is that and this is this is also another crazy thing the setup of the world is that because due to uh, digital currencies, aka what we call today cryptocurrencies, uh, there was a separation of essentially money and state where no one was paying taxes. And because no one was paying taxes, they were uh, pumping money into the economy of the United States and it hyperinflated. And then the entire economy crashed. And if, if that's not something that is Parisian for today, so you're saying, I don't believe that this is a, a novel of the 21st century. Wait five years, Futurosity. We might be there. This is like we're right on the cusp of it, right? <laughs> and so then, so I think that's really interesting. And then what, so what happens is Los Angeles separates from the rest of America. And because it doesn't have a federal government, 
every neighborhood is essentially its own nation state. So it can become pseudo sovereign and there's no police force that takes care of all of like California. And so every neighborhood has to sort of develop its own uh, mercenary police force. It very much goes back to like feudal uh, feudal Europe or feudal Japan, where every fiefdom or every king kingdom had to have its own knights that would protect its kingdom because there was no overall country that would protect it for you. Um, and so this is, it, it really takes the idea of anarcho-capitalism to its nth degree. And why I think this is so interesting is because I'm sure a lot of you know about Bitcoin here. And there's a lot, I'm a, I'm a Bitcoiner myself, but uh, I'm not necessarily in the sense of uh, the anarcho-capitalist angle of it. There's a lot of early libertarian uh, Bitcoiners who are kind of um, really believe in this um, idea that you should be fully sovereign. I don't fall exactly into that category. I'm, I'm Canadian. We're just we're just socialists up there, you know. <laughs> I don't know, but but I I I, I do love my Bitcoin uh, for for other reasons. But um, the idea that every individual is sovereign and is uh, unto themselves should be able to do what they will as long as they're not infringing upon the rights and freedoms and uh, health of other people should be okay. So if I'm a, I guess a, a, a true libertarian, and I want to, you know, pump heroin into my veins and I'm not hurting anyone, then go right ahead and do that. If I want to, you know, um, whatever, have a gun rage in my backyard, I guess you can go and do that. So that, that, that's the idea of <laughs> anarcho-capitalism. And we may be headed there. If you look at any of these cyberpunk novels, they're all about these dystopic worlds worlds where society has crumbled and then it's sort of a free-for-all. I guess that's another way to put it is this sort of free-for-all, right? Um, so I think that the, yeah, yeah so, so I think that the, I, that the fact that he created this world that is, I guess, a manifestation of anarcho-capitalism, which may come to pass in some manner if, if we uh, continue along the path we're going, I think is fascinating. Well, I love the fact he doesn't present it as the good version of this, you know, kind of anarchist system. Because when you think about it, each individual, you know, they have certain rights and privileges, but they don't necessarily cross over, not even across borders, but to the next neighborhood. So the whole concept of franchising, you know, like a corporation, you know, a pizza parlor of sorts would have, you know, their own fiefdom of multiple locations and franchisees. You know, the fact that mafia people are logos that say they're a part of the mafia in public in this future world is just quite hilarious. I mean, I think of McDonald's, for example, you know, talk about a huge corporation. I think forget is they own 36,000 locations, even though they're franchises, they own the land. Mm -hmm. McDonald's is one of the largest landowners on the planet when you add up the math. And so they realize... What if each one of those McDonald's was its own sovereign system of sorts? I mean, just imagine you go to a location, it's essentially the embassy locally. It's a, it's a strange concept, but that's the thing he got a chance to explore within this future world where eventually you know, the capital and all the money is only within these handful of corporations and mafia people. They're the only ones that really have the power in this future world. So it very much touches the same issues that we're doing within the 90s, you know, inequity and the rise in crime. Right. Yeah, yeah, the the rise of crime. And, you know, the other thing I think it's interesting about this idea of, you know, 
I guess anarchy with capitalism is basically like money can buy you whatever you want, right? Like it's kind of like it's it's sort of capitalism run completely uh, amok. But the thing that I think is interesting about it is that from from neighborhood to neighborhood, you can do and be whatever you want to be in this world. And that for me is kind of like what the internet is in a sense, right? Like whatever you want, you can find in your own little corner of the internet. And I feel like you know, technology often shapes society. So what if in the 21st century, we don't have these huge nation states where everyone watches the same news every night and everyone agrees at the same thing? What if it, society starts to reflect the technology of the internet and the metaverse and we break off into all of these little enclaves? I think that's not such an unrealistic possibility for where we're headed. So... It's interesting because we have the digital enclaves along with the physical enclaves. So it's the question of will people physically group together with like-minded folks or will they use the metaverse as a means of getting around, you know, borders? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, in this in this uh, world that he created in Snow Crash, they actually do go into the metaverse. So we've got our, our, our main character is actually a pizza delivery man. But, it, you know, in the real world, he's just a pizza delivery man. But in his mind, in the metaverse, he's this super hacker with this samurai sword who can decapitate you digitally and all of this crazy stuff. So he's kind of living a dual life. Um, and we'll get into it in a little bit. But there are characters that I love called gargoyles, which decide to live oh, yes. entirely in the metaverse. So they carry around their cases with them as they go. And they have uh, suits that kind of um, just allow them to say 100% plugged into the metaverse, even though they're walking through the real world. So all this stuff, I don't think is so far-fetched, to be honest. Like, maybe you guys think I'm crazy. I don't know. If anyone has any thoughts on Snow Crash, uh, you know, let us know, because uh, there's a lot to unpack there, for sure. Oh, no doubt. I think my iPhone makes me into a mini gargoyle. <laughs> you know, I always have a mobile device with me everywhere I go at all times of day. Really? And technically, I'm kind of stuck to it at times. It's like, ooh, I know how to drive from point A to point B, but I better bring my phone with me to pull up a map just right. in case. You know, back in the old days, you would leave the house and someone could call, possibly leave a message if you have a machine. Now, communication is ubiquitous. And no matter where you go, what time of day, there's always a means of communicating outward and inward. So it's... It's a fascinating concept when you think about it because this future you brought up is very close to what we have. I mean, people had cell phones back in the 90s just as much as we have them now. It's that we have the World Wide Web in our hands versus having to go to a place to connect. Yeah, yeah absolutely. All right. Well, if anyone has any thoughts on anarcho-capitalism or if we have any libertarians in the audience, please let us know. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, we're going to dive into the most dangerous and treacherous part of this story, which is the plot. <laughs> um, uh, do you want a brave uh, giving a, a brief recap or should I? Well, I could do a, a basic recap. I mean, they established the world and the basic concept that the U.S. government is essentially shrunken in power and all the major states and cities have broken up into these corporate fiefdoms of sort. So we start off with our hero protagonist, our main character, you know, um, early 20s young gentleman. He's biracial, um, half black American and half Japanese. And he's experiencing life as this ultimate delivery driver for pizza. Like this future, you know, delivering a pizza must be under, you know, 30 minutes or X. You know, essentially, imagine if the CEO of Papa John's had to knock on your door and say, hey, I'm terribly sorry that this pizza is delivered a minute late. That's how serious things are in this near future. Well, essentially, he ends up picking up a pizza a little bit too late and has to get to another suburban enclave 
with only a couple minutes to spare, maybe 10 minutes to get about 12 miles. Well, he ends up ultimately crashing and finds a friend in another courier named YT, who essentially grabs a pizza from him. He hands her his business card as a way of saying thanks. She runs off and delivers the pizza right on time. There's life and limb. And it was just a fascinating sequence where you just say, hey, this is the future where all these things matter. You know, it's about reputation. Well, overall, we end up learning about the world that hero protagonist goes into, which is the metaverse, and how he essentially is one of the co-developers of a lot of software that makes the metaverse operate. And he ends up experiencing a moment with one of his friends, David, who is introduced to a cyber drug called Snow mm -hmm. Crash. Essentially, his friend, both in the real world and in virtual reality, ends up having a seizure and his computer ends up crashing because of the influence of some digital bitmap file that's essentially imagined like snow on a television mm -hmm. screen from way back in the day on the analog TV. So essentially, it's a mystery of sorts. You know, YT is working her way through the mafia now that she has kind of earned some street cred for delivering that pizza. And also at the same time, we have hero protagonist trying to figure out the origins of this drug. He ends up discovering his ex-girlfriend Juanita, and funny enough, used to be married to David, who's currently hospitalized. She shares information via a hypercard. Essentially, it's a librarian of sorts that shares all this information that's been gathered about this mysterious substance called Snow Crash. So essentially, we move on to this grand conspiracy in which we discover that the Snow Crash might actually be more than just computer code. It's actually related to ancient Samaria and mind control and more. So that's essentially the setup that we go through. Yeah, no, that was very, as we learn how, you know. Very well said, I, absolutely. <laughs> no, that, that's, that's uh, very true. So so before we go into that, that's sort of like, for me, that's like the first third of the book, which is my favorite part of the book. So this is like the perfect setup, right? That's right. Um, but here's, here's, here's let me give you three uh, uh, pitches for a way that we could have created real stakes and uh, for our hero uh, with that setup. Number mm. number one, let's say that he falls for YT, or let's say that his best friend David, instead of dying of this seizure or getting his brain wiped, essentially, what if he was in a coma and the only way to save his best friend or his girlfriend would be to find the antidote? Then I would have an emotional stakes that would be like, okay, we have a, a personal reason why he needs to go and solve the problem. Here, here's here's a option uh, number two is that um, he is infected with the virus and he knows that within 48 hours, he has to find the antidote or he's going to get his mind hacked and wiped, right? That would have had much more uh, uh, exciting stakes. And here's the final option going along with the character of here that we do know what if he was hired by somebody? He'll give him millions of dollars. Oh, well, they, they go by the Gipper coin, but let's say they're going to go, you know, <laughs> he gives them a, you know, a trillion Gippers if he was to be able to get the antidote and find, get to the bottom of this thing. Then we're on a, a very clear journey. We're on a very clear track. We have a personal stakes, personal uh, interest in the story. And for me, that would have been such an, a, a simple narrative device to be able to draw us into the story. But instead, we kind of, he kind of loosey-goosey decides, maybe I'll go check this stuff out for no apparent reason. And it's like, there's, but there's no stakes. There's nothing bad that will happen if he doesn't figure all this stuff out. So it just feels like a little bit loose to me. Oh, I agree. That's the funniest thing. I love that first third. I mean, those first 200 yeah. pages or so, it's wonderful world yeah. building. And then suddenly realize, does David even matter to the plot? Because I, I thought, hey, you know, when I first read it back, even in the 
back in the 90s. I'm like, oh, David must be important. They must be good friends. I mean, you used to date his wife. Like, come on. Nope. <laughs> I don't, they don't even talk right. about him again, practically. He was just a plot right. device. We just see the effects of the drug, and then he's just kind of left in the hospital for the rest of the story. Yeah. Yeah, and then so where we go from there is where things get really crazy because we get into the second third of the book, the middle portion of the book, and literally the entire middle section of the book, Hero is spent in a library learning about Sumerian culture <laughs> from these ancient archives that are held in this Congress, you know, this Library of Congress. Like, what? And so he's completely bogged down, and it goes on and on. And I think it's fascinating, all the stuff he talks about with Sumeria, but man, does he really want us to know about Sumerian culture and, like, all the connections and intricacies of the ancient world and the Tower of Babel and all that stuff. It's wild how long it goes on for. Like, it's almost absurd. <laughs> it's the beyond the biggest info dump I've ever read in a book. I swear, because there's at least a 60-page info dump for sure. Like, the first Sumerian section is at least 60 pages of them going into all these fine details different goddesses and gods and how language you know neurolinguistics and how it could take over your brain i mean very fascinating concepts but that almost seems like hey wouldn't that be better in like some kind of index of sorts you right. know just hey they could easily be in the back index of the book a couple paragraphs but he went all in and i think the story kind of suffers a little bit because it takes a while to get through that little bit in the yeah, middle. Yeah, absolutely. So, so to so to paraphrase it all and sort of it, it sort of give you the 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 cold notes of everything. And by the way, if anyone here has any opinions on Snow Clash, we really do want to hear from you. Andre Crabtree the Third or Tom or I love that name. Eminem is here. Eminem's here. Oh my God. Uh, maybe he can uh, he can do some free verse for us about Snow Crash. But um, yeah. So so okay. So so I'm going to try to summarize this super simply. Um, basically, the Sum he believes that the Sumerians had developed a language that was able to go into the code of your mind and essentially brainwash you. And then there was um, people didn't want Sumerian culture to take over the world, and they didn't want to brainwash the entire world. So there was this figure of legend called Enki who developed essentially a counter virus that would counteract the Sumerian um, brainwash. And this is all done through language. And so they, they speak in tongues and things like that. And so this Enki uh, one uh, was, once they released that into the world, they believe that that's what led to the Tower of Babel, which is where everyone uh, couldn't understand each other. And all of these different languages were created uh, because they were trying to, they protected the world. They saved the world from Sumerian brainwashing, essentially. So that's like a super, super paraphrasing. So to, 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 to bring that in its, into its parallel into Snow Crash, somebody, for some reason, has somehow tapped into this Sumerian brainwashing deep uh, communication uh, ability and has encoded it into a bitmap, which when you look at it in digital form in the metaverse, uh, will brainwash you or kill you or do whatever, right? And so the idea is that somebody has, has found a way to create a virus of the mind that can hurt you in the real world, even if you contract it in the metaverse. So, so even that is a really cool idea, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, language going viral, the concept how language can alter perception. I mean, those are things that are actually being studied right now. I mean, the most fascinating one I could think of as far as language altering reality, um, such as color choices. Like, for example, like people ask, why are 
you know, green lights in Japan blue. Well, mm. the reason why they're blue is because of language. You know, in Japanese, essentially, their first four colors were white, black, red, and they used blue, ao. Mm. Only in modern times did the word Midori become popular to differentiate the color green. So when you're over there, the streetlights will see blue. It's, not, it's designed that way because it's based on the language. So it's really fascinating how in the West, our main colors were black, white, red, and green. Mm. Um, so that changes your perspective. You know, like it's, it's, not, it's a small concept, but your language can really alter so much of how you perceive the world, even differentiating between shades of color. Like in Russia, they have a simple term for light blue as well as standard blue. Well, if you show people that grew up in that culture a palette of colors of, you know, from light to dark within that same range, you're able to differentiate a handful more faster than someone who grew up without that same kind of blue color language. Mm. So you do see it in real life. So it's really fascinating how we inputted this way back in the 90s. Yeah. And now linguistics experts and neurologists are seeing some of these same concepts now. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's also interesting, too, that he's trying to connect our the way our brains work in a binary way to the way that uh, technology works with zeros and ones, and so he's interconnecting us our in, inherent nature with the metaverse being also a part of our inherent binary nature, right? So it's, it's and also sort of the idea that you can encode your biological mind just like you can encode your metaverse avatar. So I love those those uh, parallels that he's creating. Uh, I just wish that he didn't go into such insane insane depth. But um, okay, so so then we we're, we we get into um, so the second part because he's trapped in a library for literally the middle third of the book. That's that's <laughs> when YT needs to go out and do some uh, exploring, and so she gets hired by the mafia to figure out what's going on. They discover that there is a religious cult that is speaking in tongues that are infecting people with an actual drug that they put in their veins, which it turns out is like uh, poisoned blood that is has the virus in their blood. So that's kind of crazy. Then um, they also discover uh, basically that they, they think that maybe who's behind it might be this uh, media magnet, which makes sense because then they're like, well, this media magnet can pro proliferate this uh, snow crash virus into the population in the metaverse and brainwash everybody to follow his media company. So he's sort of this evil, evil media magnet, which is also a really cool idea. Oh, that totally fits into the 90s as well, because that was when cable television was booming mm. and also the Internet at the same time. So you had like dueling audiences and even the fact that the, you know, the televangelists, that was a huge thing in the late 80s, early 90s as well. So that, you know, you could have this multi-billion dollar organization that could reach out to millions of people. You know, that concept still goes even now. Yeah, you know? no, absolutely. Uh, all right. Well, we do have a thought or a question from uh, Hash. So we're going to take that here. Let's see what Hash has to say. Hi, Hash. Hi. Um, I was just wondering, where's the snow crash? Where's the snow crash? <laughs> well, we didn't bring any. You don't want to get brainwashed, do you? You don't want to, uh, you know, your body to go <laughs> into uh, fits or something like that. That would be a horrible thing. We're saving you. Saving you from, we are the end key of this situation. We're the antidote, hopefully. 
Thanks. <laughs> thanks for your oh. thanks for your thought, Hash. Um, all right. If anyone else also has read Snow Crash, has an opinion, has a thought, please do let us know. That includes you, Jeff 0311. We want to hear your thoughts as well. Um, all right, we got oh, one more here. Dave. Uh, Dave has a thought. What's up, Dave? Uh, yeah, hi. I just reread uh, Snow Crash recently, um, and I had forgotten how, uh, about the details of it. When I got into that middle third, and there was there was he was going on and on and on about Samaria and uh, all the theories. I thought he was just making all that stuff up, but apparently, uh, it's based on a lot of real research and real science or history. Um, but when he got into the how it affected language. And uh, the M mm -hmm. and um, all that. I was. I, I'm wondering about. Is that based on some sort of real research, or did he make all that stuff up? And then I, even beyond that, it seems like the book is actually several different stories sort of um, hashed together. And of course, the the metaverse itself, that, which is pretty interesting. But then he ties in ties it into the the whole thing about the the um, snow crash and the code and all that. And I, it got to me, started to sound to me after a while, like maybe his focus on the story, his main interest was um, the language and the Sumerians and the snow crash. And he just sort of uh, used the metaverse and uh, hero protagonist and all that as just a vehicle to present the, the primary uh, interest in his story, his primary yep. interest. Uh, awesome thoughts, Dave the Turner. I couldn't agree more. I think you totally nailed it. I think that he is, I think he's a technologist first, and I think he's a, a dramatist second, right? So I, I think that he uh, comes up with these all these incredible ideas for the future. And then he builds a really cobbled together, uh, not very well constructed plot around it. But I don't think that that's his interest. I totally agree uh, with that. I think so too. You can also tell the difference between someone with a technology background writing sci-fi versus, you know, William yeah. Gibson. Um, you know, remember he was creating these amazing cyberpunk worlds, but he wasn't really computer literate. And you could kind of right. see the difference. But the other funny part is it actually makes William Gibson's work um seem a little more universal. Mm. It seems to not feel dated because it's all, you know, just from the imagination versus Neil Stevenson, it's very much within the root of what 90s technology can mm -hmm. do. So that is kind of fascinating. It's like one's a little less universal, but mm -hmm. I, it reminds me of, um, you know, think of Tolkien, for example, mm -hmm. you know, where he wanted to, you know, play with languages and he wanted to create an elf based language and ends up kind of working the Lord of the Rings around that because it was an exercise in language creation and learning, but also he created mm -hmm. a story around it. It kind of feels like Stevenson did something very mm -hmm. similar in mm -hmm. this case. He had an excellent concept he wanted to play with and just kind of found a framework to wrap around mm -hmm. it, make it make yeah. sense. Absolutely. And, to, and to, to your other point, Dave the Turner, uh, your question, it, did he make up all of the stuff about the Sumerians? I have no idea. I have no idea. Maybe some of it's fiction, maybe some of it's not. We got to get Neil Stevenson out here to, to give us a, his, his thoughts because, uh, I, you know, it. Well, I guess on the language side of things. What's that? I'm sorry. But as far as the um, universality of mm -hmm. language, I think it's um, based on some of Noam Chomsky's mm. um, research back in the day how you know certain phenomes are you know connected universally you know like you know basic terms like ma and na mm. you know mother father um there's certain things but it's not like it's proven but back in the 90s I remember that was a concept that was pretty popular as far as hey 
all language is universal. It's built onto our brains and it's based on like a feedback process. Essentially, you hear that baby go da and father's there. Ah, it's me. You know, says ma. Mother's there. Hey, it's me. It's that's what they kind of believed at the time. Right. Yeah. No, that's very that's very good. I love that you, you're this your encyclopedia of '90s knowledge. This is awesome. Uh, that's that's <laughs> that's very true. Um, and David, if you had anything else to add there, uh, you know. Please do. We'll take your question. But um, just to super, super quickly go into the um, final third, actually, let's, we'll let Dave talk before we go to the final third here. Uh, what's up, Dave? Uh, well, just um, it's, I, I was observing that in the book, uh, the library, when it's speaking, does, it gives a lot of attribution to um, when, he, when he makes a statement. He says, well, so-and-so said this, or this is what so-and-so said about this other guy's thing. And then at, in the, right. um, at the end of the book, uh, what do you call it? The, well, anyway, acknowledgments at the end of the book, he mentions that he, was, he very, did that very carefully to acknowledge the help that he got from uh, these historians. Mm. So uh, then, then it, you know, it's, I, thought, well, I figured, well, probably a lot of that stuff's uh, real, real research, real science. But again, the language part of it was uh, uh, really uh, – I would like to more know more about that, about how much of that is uh, real, real uh, history, real, real right, research. Right, right, absolutely. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, he's a, he's a he's a he's a deep uh, a deep thinker and researcher. It feels like that's for sure. Um, all right, so the so the so the last third of the book, uh, there's not much more to add. The only things I would add about that is that they go onto the raft which is this giant floating barge thing that's interconnected all these ships. And it has, again, no nation that it belongs to. And then they have to jump onto this barge and then they've got to uh, track down this, uh, track down Rife. Uh, and then Rife's master plan in, in Act 3 is essentially to release the uh, snow crash into this virtual concert in the metaverse. Um, and then... Uh, Basically, Hero gets there just in time to save the day because he has discovered the Elki of Nanshub and is able to counteract the snow crash uh, and save the day. And then the end, everything just kind of works out and we don't have any real explanation. But And YT never ends up with Hero. Did that feel weird to you? Well, no, because the age gap. Yeah. I'm <laughs> yes. assuming she's supposed to be about 15. She's 15. I'm assuming he's supposed to be like 20, 21. Right. That's right. So yeah, that that's gets a little weird too cuz I think sometimes you forget how old she is cuz she drinks beer, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um all right, anything else to add about the plot featurosity? Well, I think overall that last third, it's the most abrupt ending in sci-fi that I can remember. Yeah. Cuz it feels like there's no wrap-up chapter. We don't get a chance to see YT coming home and making up with her mom. We don't get to see right. Juanita and Hero protagonists get back together because she kind of promised herself to him, even though, you know, I guess David is an ex as well, but he's still in the hospital and no one helped him <laughs> as far as we know. Right. <laughs> yep. Hero saved the day, but they didn't save their friend. Yeah. Yeah. It's to David's point. It's kind of like, oh, well, that's an afterthought. And it's like, we just really wanted to introduce all these really cool ideas. All right, so we're going to go into characters, but as we just talked about, uh, there's not much in terms of personality necessarily, but there is a lot in terms of some of the technology and kind of interesting stuff. Um, so yeah, Hero here, of course, and these are all different um, artistic renditions of Hero based on uh, people online. 
We're going to post these on our Instagram at the Simulation Nation, and we'll also have this video up on YouTube. If you search Simulation Nation podcast, I think that's the best way to find us on YouTube, because if you don't, then this like Steve Madden, like fantasy league comes up and they just are stealing all our thunder. <laughs> but anyway. Um, all right. So, you know, uh, Hero, uh, he's got this uh, interesting sort of suit. I think he, you know, I, I think he's, he's uh, part African-American, but all, then part Korean by way of Japan. So he's sort of, uh, yeah, so, yes. so the term hero is a Japanese name, but uh, I think he's actually Korean. So there's a kind of interesting um, combo there. Um, anyway, he, he was, I think you mentioned it really well. He went to like Berkeley. He's like this super smart guy. He was this uh, coder. Uh, and then uh, he essentially uh, coded some of the metaverse. So he has these hacks that he can get around the metaverse better than anyone else because uh, he can go into like these sewers, sort of like these substrates and, uh, sneak around, uh, which is which is pretty cool. Um, and a lot of these ideas, by the way, were were nabbed right out of uh, Snow Crash for Ready Player One. Did you notice a lot of that stuff? Oh yes. Yeah. I mean, when you compare Ready Player One with this book, I mean, it, there's a lot of inspiration. Yeah. But at the same time, you notice um, with Snow Crash, it's more dystopian future. Oh, so, I mean, when you look at there's a happy-ish ending, but compared to Ready Player One, that definitely is a much happier ending. You know, the main character ends up a billionaire and gets to take over the whole metaverse in that right. world. You know, in this case, it's more of a minor victory. Right. Well, also, you know, another comparison with Ready Player One, this guy lives in a you-store-it bin, right? And in Ready Player One, yes. they live in, a, in a, essentially a trailer up on top of another trailer. So it's kind of the same idea where there's a dystopic outside world and then there's like a, a utopic almost inside uh, metaverse type world. Oh yeah. Um, which is kind of neat. Um, the other, the nice thing I liked about. Mm -hmm. No, no, sorry. go ahead. Please. Well, the other thing I like about hero protagonists compared to, you know, other like metaverse sci-fi, you know, main characters is the fact that he's also capable in and outside of the metaverse. You know, he actually has a physical sword in the real world mm -hmm. and he is capable. He exercises and works out and practices. Mm -hmm. So he's not just like a, a ninja slash samurai in the virtual world. He actually can, you know, kick some behind in the real world. I mean, he beheads a person, <laughs> right. you know, like some racist guy confronts him when he's in Alaska and he just straights up <laughs> beheads the guy in front of everybody with his katana. Yeah. So I I love the fact that he's not just a, a, a wimp in the real world. He's cool in both places, yeah. but at the same time, almost too cool. That's most of the characters. They're all a little too cool for school. Mm -hmm. So not, nothing too bad happens to them. They always save face. Mm -hmm. you know, they never look uncool in any, any way in this whole book. Yeah, the other thing I thought that was interesting about him is that to make ends meet at the beginning, he was what they call a bithead. So he would strap a camera to his body, and when he was sort of surfing through the uh, not the metaverse through the burb claves, uh, he would then um, like say let's say he saw a crime or let's say he saw something happen, he would sell that to an archive, which is kind of a neat idea. So you essentially are wearing a device that will capture what's happening in the world, and then you sell that as like information uh, data, um, which actually, if you think about it, is one of the major plot points of Ready Player Two. I just put that together now, actually. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. It is actually fascinating because the whole data mining concept where you know, essentially we give away all of our information for free to all these tech companies. So we use Facebook for free and we give them a lot of personal data. I like the fact in this world, your protagonist gives away personal data, but he gets compensated mm -hmm. for it. I kind of wish that you know, we would have that same thing. Hey, we know you're data mining. Give me a couple bucks for doing it. It's cool that in this future world, we do get some money back. Right. 
That's true. Yeah. Um, okay. So here's here's a, a YT, and like we said, because Hero gets so bogged down at the library during a action adventure novel, <laughs> we need another character to take <laughs> off and do some of the action, and so it turns out to be YT, who is uh, 15 years old. And there are some quite sexual scenes with uh, with an older man in the story. I don't know if that would fly today exactly. <laughs> kind of a strange choice. Uh, she lives with her mom, and she uh, essentially poons. So she like she has a skateboard, and then she harpoons cars and ongoing vehicles, and grabs onto the back of like a grapple hook, and then is able to get places quicker and get past security for different bird plays and things like that. So she's sort of like this badass, uh, you know, bird clave surfer kind of chick, which is pretty cool. Oh yeah, classic Back to the Future, oh, yeah. you know, bumper riding on a skateboard, <laughs> just the futuristic version. Because now, instead of having a hoverboard, she has smart wheels that can move on any mm -hmm. surface and actually alters the wheel based on the cracks and crevices. So you get like really, really cool moves. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the coolest concept. I, I wanted one mm -hmm. of those. I remember re reading this when I was younger and I thought, okay, I'm not good on a regular skateboard, but this one, hey, I would try yeah, it out. Absolutely. And one of my favorite uh, characters that I'm not going to really bring up uh, in a slide is uh, the character, the Vietnamese guy that she ends up going uh, to Long Beach with. And it's uh, his, his name is NG. I don't know how to, do you know how to pronounce NG in Vietnamese? I think it's just mm. Mm. Okay, so she ends up with this guy noon. And I, I really like that guy because in the metaverse, he's living like this Vietnamese paradise where he's got all these kind of like surveys. He's got this, uh, he's got this windows that, uh, of his like palace that overlook these rice fields and all this stuff. But in the real world, we discover he was uh, gunned down in Saigon in 1974 during the Vietnam War and is completely disfigured and only can survive as a cyborg and has plugged his body into the metaverse. And so he spends most of his time or if not all of his time in the metaverse living this fantasy life and in the real world he's just a bumble of cables and uh i imagine pus and cables and all that kind of stuff so i really like that character that, that was a fascinating character um i don't know if we're gonna guess we're gonna talk about the uh, rat yeah um, we can't talk about snow crash without the rat thing. <laughs> <laughs> all right just check it i was like yeah we'll get we'll move on <laughs> all right we'll get to the rat things in just a second the other the only other character i really wanted to talk about was raven um, I think it's really interesting thing about Raven. He is a self-sovereign individual, so he belongs to no nation, but he has <laughs> the uh, rights of a nation that we would have today. And so what happens is, I think, from what I understood, he's a he's from uh, a Aluit tribe, which is, I, I, I sort of took it as like an Inuit tribe almost. And he was pissed at like the Soviets and the Americans, and so he essentially stole a nuke when the Soviet Union fell and he attached it to his body <laughs> so that if someone kills him in, in the real world, a nuclear weapon goes off. Like how insane is that, that he plugged a nuclear weapon into himself? Um, and so that was a great concept. Yeah. Essentially, he's a bulletproof man. He could walk and no one's going to mess with him because they know he's untouchable. Because just mutually assured destruction, you know, a couple miles are going to disappear on the planet because one person injures him. He's the safest guy in the area. Yeah, he was very much like an anime villain, you know, <laughs> like this super powerful, super powerful fighter, you know, with evil intent. But also, you know, he was sensuous. You know, it's like you know, YT fell in love with him of sorts, or at least was infatuated with the yep. man. So I mean, he had enough confidence and also kind of gave off a certain level of charisma. 
That's true. But, you know, in terms of like him, not him, if he dies in the real world, this nuclear weapon goes off. Like, what happens if he slips on a banana peel? What happens if he falls down the stairs? <laughs> We're just going to be in a nuclear holocaust? This guy's crazy. Uh, which I guess is why uh, he has tattooed on his forehead poor impulse control. Uh, so, you know, this guy, I love a little live that. wire here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. So, uh, so, so the tech, this is where we get to talk about the, uh, the rat things. We might as well jump straight to it. We talked about Nanshub a, a bit, which is this sort of, um, the way that he kind of defines Nanshub is that it's like, uh, um, it's like a metaverse, a meta virus, right? So the, it, it's like, uh, it's like a magical, uh, saying that will, uh, create some kind of virus within us. Um, and so the snow crash itself was kind of like the atomic bomb of informational warfare, which I thought was kind of cool too. I mean, so many cool ideas in this knowledge, like ton, chock, chock full of really cool ideas. Um, oh yeah. I mean, essentially how a bitmap image could have so much information in it. Um, that it actually works the same way now when it comes to, you know, in, and we're shrinking down files and you know, we're trying to make files smaller and smaller through compression and suddenly realize one image can carry so much information that it could overload you quote unquote within this world yeah. all right here we go rat things oh, yes. so oh. so to tell tell us about the rat things the futurosity well the rat things are unfortunate because they are essentially these kind of nuclear powered super hot creatures that have a brain of a dog that's inside. right a real dog and essentially they have to stay cool in the special cooler because they don't really have a natural cooling self-cooling system when you think of a real natural dog you know they pant to stay cool because they don't really sweat the same way as other creatures do well they don't have the equivalent of panting they literally have to be in this super cooled cage of sorts to ensure that their parts are going to keep working properly but the weirdest thing about the book is the fact we get to hear from the perspective mm -hmm. one of these creatures mm -hmm. a few times within the metaverse and within the real world so suddenly you realize this rat thing um, is actually IT's former dog or pit bull that disappeared, which is just so disturbing. Right. It's like someone took the pit bull's brain out and put it into this monstrosity. Yep. Yeah. But the weirdest part is, you know, in, um, you know, um, I guess he believes that he's actually enhancing them for the good of their right. own sake. But it's quite disturbing. Because, because, Ing himself cannot survive without machines, and he knows that his life is better because of it, so he assumes that that's for every living creature. And I think that Ing basically resides in Mr. Lee's Greater Hong Kong, right? So that's a verb clave of this guy, Mr. Lee, who, who is he yeah. sort of this, um, he's a wealthy sort of fiefdom of his little town, and, and, and Ing is there. And Ing is one of the um, ones who created the rat things uh, as sort of guard dogs, I guess, for that neighborhood or that bird clave. Um, but then he's, he, he, can, he can summon them at will because he's plugged into machines. And so he can use his mind <laughs> to telepathically connect to the rat things and then go attack somebody or do whatever he wants to do, which is so cool that he's got these attack dogs that like telepathic rat, uh, <laughs> you know, attack dogs, which is really cool. I guess the reason they're called rat things is because of their really long tail that they have in order to have balance and speed and all of that kind of stuff but actually they yeah. are the minds of the dog so we actually see that the dog like you know they can they can live in the metaverse when they're not um on some mission and they just like chase bones and like run through meadows in the in, you know in the metaverse which is a really funny idea and actually it 
even funnier stakes yeah it kind of reminds me the stakes grow on it kind of reminds me you were posting uh this week on uh, on uh, social media about the cows that are being put into virtual reality to create more milk oh my goodness <laughs> it's yes. kind of a similar idea such an absurd bizarre concept and now it's happening in real life like meat states and things that produce and meat can now enjoy cyberspace yeah. It's the strangest concept. Yeah, and it all started with the rat things. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on the rat things, Dave. <laughs> oh, yes, you do. <laughs> oh, Trey Trey is here. Trey might have a... Uh, maybe Trey has a... Where's Trey? I don't see Trey. Oh, you know what? We don't... Are, when, well, let me think. Trey, are you here? No, he's not able to... Uh, let's try Dave. Oh. <laughs> Uh, <clears throat> I like the rat things. They they kind of tick, tickled my fancy, <clears throat> and uh, you know I had I have an affection for them, especially since they they all seem to be so good natured. <laughs> uh, and it and it really uh, crushed me right at the end when Fido ran into the the into that jet, just ran himself right into the engine, sacrificed himself for uh, just basically to to for vengeance. Right. Yep. Um, I don't think he was trying to save uh, YT. Because she was already all, all right, I presume he figured that out. But he just wanted to go after the people, the bad people that hurt right. him. And yeah. uh, the impression I got was not that it was just a brain inside of all that machinery, but there was part of his his uh, the rest Skeleton. of his body in there right. too. Because when he was injured, he bled, mm. he was bleeding. Ah, yes. Mm. And it and it kind of I kind of got the impression that there was more than just the brain inside mm. of it. And um, you know, I want one. Yep. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I want one to curl up at night with me in bed and, and uh, happiness is a warm go puppy. for walks. Happiness and... is a warm rat thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> rat thing, right. Awesome. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, moving on from Fido here. Uh, the last we we sort of touched on the gargoyles already. Those guys are nuts. <laughs> I hope we don't see those in the real world. Uh, please, people, have a good uh, metaverse life balance. Don't trap yourself in the metaverse entirely. Uh, that would be bad. Um, all right. So um, I, you know, I think we've also touched on the point quite a bit. I don't think there's a central theme here uh, besides the idea of language and the duality. Uh, and, and the the sort of um, connection that he's trying to make between our digital selves and our real selves, I think that that is a really prescient idea. Um, but otherwise, I don't think that there's a philosophy or a theme that he's trying to dramatize to uh, create a point about all of this or to create a, a moral of the story. I don't believe there's any of that. I think he's just experimenting like a mad scientist on the page and coming up with cool ideas. No, I agree. There's no, you know, classic, you know, lesson to be learned. You know, we don't have a speech at the end where the character sums up what this is all about and how we should move on with life. It's more of an exploration. You know, it, it is satirical in nature. So I don't think satire needs to give you the answer. Satire just needs to point out the flaws in the system. And I think that's mm -hmm. how this book works so well is that he's pointing out all the numerous flaws in a system if it goes too far you know if we have a fully you know you know anarchist based capital system capitalist system versus something where people have a little more you know say in what happens in their future and in their world 
in this case is, hey, this is the worst case scenario, but hey, we're going to still laugh. You know, it's not as dire feeling. Even the handling of the immigrants and the refugees on the raft, you know, they, they kind of touched upon it, but they didn't get too serious about, you know, refugee policy and how people should be treated. Um, it, it, either way, there wasn't really a lesson right. to be learned. They just kind of gave us the gist of a very distorted yeah. world. And it, essentially the audience and the readers have a chance to kind of reflect on it on their own. You know, they kind of come to their own conclusion. So I kind of respect that right. in many ways. It's not didactic. Right. It's not what I call like a spinach book where it's good for you and it's telling you why it's good for right. you. This lets you kind of answer your own questions. Yep. Nope, absolutely. Um, I totally agree. So uh, let's move right along here. I think that the legacy is something interesting to talk about. For, for <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, of course, here we've got uh, Casa Drostra uh, because, of course, the mafia have uh, bird plays that they own and because they can have their own... Um, you know, guards and they can have their own sort of bounty hunters and they can just do whatever they want because it's a, it's an anarchy anarchy. And so from under anarchy capitalism, of course, the uh, mafia is going to thrive. Um, but, um, <laughs> but the, obviously the legacy of this book is that it literally invented the term metaverse. It will always be a seminal novel for that alone. Now that the term metaverse is taking off and becoming something that we're actually doing. Um, so that's the big legacy. The other interesting thing, and I don't know if anyone can confirm this, uh, if anyone can out there in the podcast land when you're listening to us, or maybe Dave knows something about this, but I heard a rumor ba way back in the day that um, when Zuckerberg started Facebook, he loved the ideas of the metaverse so much in this anarcho-capitalist idea where society was reflected in the way that the internet uh, was back then that he made all of his early employees at Facebook read this book. And here we are 20 years Ooh. later or 15 years later, and he's now changed the name to Meta. So I think that is a big legacy also, the fact that uh, Mark Zuckerberg, one of the biggest social media moguls of our time, and now the one leading the way into the Metaverse, um, is a huge fan of this book and is uh, sort of designing some of his ideas off of it, which is really wild to me. Oh, same thing with Google. Um, Google Earth, I was reading how the team was inspired by the Earth application that was mentioned in the book mm. as well. Essentially, that's how Hero was going on his road trip. He used a special Earth application kind of zoom in on roads and to get around. So I definitely read the, um, the Google Earth team for sure that were inspired by the book as well. So it's great science fiction helps technology. I mean, it really does. It inspires the next generation try to create that. Absolutely. And not only that, but of course, Neil Stevenson, since his uh, fame, I guess you'd say from all these novels, has been hired as a futurist for, uh, he worked for Google uh, uh, Google Brain. Uh, he worked for Magic Leap, uh, trying to help them get AR uh, capabilities happening. He worked for Blue Origin, uh, which is basically trying to take us wow. into space, right? So um, it's it's really fascinating that uh, his vehicle to get his ideas across was these novels, but then he sort of has been hired so frequently as a futurist to um, lead the way in these companies. So fascinating. Yeah. Um, and then I, I think the other the other legacy is all the things we talked about with Ready Player One, which is a hugely sort of popular uh, franchise now and, and a series of books and all like that. Uh, the the author um, Ernest Klein has has openly admitted that the, that Ready Player One would not exist without Snow Crash. Um, so he really got a lot of these ideas, but then sort of popified them. 
So he took away the Sumerian depth and he added pop culture references. <laughs> like he basically went in deep into pop culture references as, you know, Neil Stevenson went into Sumerian uh, ancient, you know, wisdom. Um, so that's basically the, the one uh, <laughs> differentiation there. But um, I think that's interesting also. And apparently they've been trying to make this movie since the 90s. Uh, Marshall Kennedy, who... Um, are uh, often uh, Spielberg collaborators, Zemeckis collaborators. They've owned the rights for this for many years. They had many different iterations of this. Um, filmmaker Vincenzo Natale from Canada had wanted to adapt it at one point. He said it was unadaptable uh, in a, into a film form because it changes tone so frequently. Starts off as a, as a yeah. simple satire about a, uh, a, a um, pizza delivery man, and then it turns into this ancient Sumerian stuff and then in the end it becomes something different again <laughs> and so i can see how he would say it's not it doesn't have the dramatic structure for a feature film but maybe it has a world that you can explore in a television series and so after vincenzo tried and failed then there was uh, another writer uh, named jeffrey um Nachmanoff who wrote the day after tomorrow he tried and failed then joe cornish oh, yeah wow. joe cornish who did the attack the block yep. uh he tried and failed and then Amazon Studios picked it up. They couldn't make it work into television form. Um, then HBO Max picked it up in 2019. They couldn't make it work. And uh, apparently now it's reverted back to Kennedy Marshall again. So they have it at Paramount. Wow. And it's been, they've tried all these different iterations. No one can find a way to make it work. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if it can be done. It would, they'd have to tweak it quite a bit. They really would. I mean, they wouldn't be able to do a great no. adaptation it would have to work almost like the watchman series on hbo max right as watchman said hey instead of making a direct sequel um you know instead of making it directly a direct retelling they kind of made a sequel using all that world yep. building i think that might be a better means of it it's like hey tell the story after this there's so much that we don't know you know what does yt do next what does your protagonist do next i mean there's a whole world to explore that might be a better option instead of doing a you know, scene by scene retelling, which it'll be impossible to make it work for, you know, standard screen, screen use. Absolutely. That's a great idea. And Paramount, uh, uh, Frank Marshall, uh, Kathleen Kennedy, if you're listening, Futurosity and I are available <laughs> to write that script. I, I think that's actually the way to go, to be honest. It's almost like the way that they're doing Blade Runner 2049 was almost fan fiction of Philip K. Dick's novel. And they're expanding on the world, but all the seeds were there in the original. I think that's really the way to go. Um, for sure. Take this world and build off of what they did, but build a, st a new story out of it um, a little bit later on in the in the timeline. That sounds great. I'd see it. Oh, I'd yeah. see it, Futurosity. Let's do it. Um, all right. <laughs> all right. So now it's wow time. Wow. 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 All right. This means we are going to give our wow score. And Dave the Turner, we want to hear your wow score as well. 10 wows is like, this is the greatest most influential novel of all time zero wows is what the hell did i just spend all my time reading um dave to turner do you want to go first yeah all right what do you give it well i give it eight wows i think uh, I've, I've read a lot better science fiction i've read much better science fiction but i do like um that uh, there's a lot of imaginative things in here that uh, he, he's got. Um, Neil Stevenson has an, an, an incredible imagination. 
I think. He, he got a lot of things sort of uh, not quite right. Like, for instance, it seemed like in, in the, his metaverse, uh, everybody was constrained to a lot of physical characteristics mm -hmm. or physical properties that we aren't constrained to in, in the VR that we know today. It's more like, sort of like his metaverse was one of the worlds that you might find in, in mm -hmm. all space. And you, you're confined. You, if you want to go from one place to another, you have to find a way to travel there. You have to find a way to, whereas in, in the VR that we know now, you can travel between worlds almost in, instantaneously. Mm -hmm. So when he needed to go to a, another place on that large sphere, which actually was measured in miles and, and all that stuff, he had to get on this motorcycle that went 60,000 miles an hour. Um, right. So, uh, yeah, that those some of those things sort of uh, dampened down my uh, appreciation of the of the story a little bit. Okay, interesting, great. All right, um, who's going next? Me or you, Futurosity? Oh, well, I wouldn't mind. Go for it. I mean, I I agree very much with him. I mean, the more I think about it, back in the day when I first read it, it was the most amazing mind blowing. Just because you know I didn't read as much science fiction yet at the time, so I was much younger. But now I could drop the score, but I would give it a solid eight. I mean, because when you think of it, it was innovative in many different levels as far as the technology and the world building, but the actual mechanics of the storytelling, that's where it kind of, you know, simmered off. In many ways, it trailed off at the end and, you know, he kind of got lost in his storytelling. You know, he wanted to build this world. He wanted to give us all this in-depth information. He seemed to be as less interested in the character interactions than the actual you know big picture points you wanted to tell so i mean language wise technology wise and just you know mind bending you know religious allegorical information it all interconnected but as a whole it doesn't work that well as a story but for its influence and everything else i would still give it an eight because it's still an amazing story to tell yes it is impossible to adapt properly but it's still that first third alone even if you just pause for a day or two and just slog through the middle third, it's well worth it by hit time hit the yeah. end. Well, you know, uh, I I uh, I think that we are all pretty much in agreement. You you said it better than I probably can. Um, I think that um, I do. The thing I want to give it full credit for, which I think we all have, is that it is only every once in a while, every decade, where a book comes out that invents things that become very Frigid and very much uh, a part of the lexicon of the future generations. And this book really uh, seems to have done that. It captivated the people that are developing the technologies that are leading to this future. Um, they sort of, it was sort of like the seeds of inception were in this book. And the fact that he was able to predict uh, digital currencies, uh, you know, separating people from tax money and creating hyperinflation and you know, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, Jack Dorsey, the uh, founder of Twitter, who just stepped down, but he was talking about how there's, we're headed for hyperinflation. So this is stuff that's literally like it's finally coming true. To, uh, nine, he wrote it in 92. We're in 22. So, uh, you know, 30 years later. I mean, this is uh, pretty incredible uh, when you think of it in, in that way that he had predicted as much as he did. Of course, he's not going to get it all right. He's just having fun. He's just playing. Um, and some things are going to be right. Some things are going to be wrong. Uh, but 
the amount of things that he did get right, this anarcho-capitalist society, the you know uh, America on the brink of hyperinflation, uh, us spending more time in the metaverse and becoming sort of cyborgs and connecting with uh, machines and all of that kind of stuff is really, really brilliant. And it's all in here uh, in between uh, one book, one cover uh, and back cover with a spine. It's all right in there. Um, yes, it's true that he shortchanged uh, the plot the dramatization, the characters. Um, but hey, you can't ask for everything. We gave, He gave us enough. So I do <laughs> give it an eight. I think we're eights all around. Um, and I, I, you know, eight, eight, I almost want to give it an eight and a half just for his ideas, but I'm sticking with an eight uh, because of the other things that are issues. I mean, if he had just stuck with the first third of the book and made that a little novella with a bit of beginning, bullet and end, that would have been incredible. Um, but he kind of went off onto different tangents, but. Anyway, really interesting. Um, and uh, thank you so much, uh, Dave the Turner, for all your thoughts. We're so glad that there's another Snow Crash reader out here. Uh, we had a lot of people who were curious about it, but none others that had read it. So I uh, appreciate your input there. Um, any uh, last thoughts, uh, Futurosity, before we head out? Well, I, one thing I do love about the book, um, the billion-dollar bill. <laughs> First time I actually saw a picture of a billion-dollar bill right. in real life was and they had that inflation crisis right. a few years ago where people were buying those billion dollar bills on eBay because they're only worth a couple cents each. But now a few years later, you could sell them for maybe 50 to 100 bucks. So it is kind of a fascinating concept that currency is worthless, but the resale value has more value now. Right, 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 right. Totally. Um, do you want to tell people where they can get in touch with you? Oh, yes. If you want to get in touch or have a discussion, you can always find me on Instagram. I am at Ferocity VR. Please follow me. Absolutely. Uh, and um, yeah, that's for us. Thank you for teleporting in to this worldcast of Simulation Nation. Whether you're with us in the metaverse, like hero protagonist here at Futurosity VR, Dave the Turner, Kurt, and a bunch of other ones, um, or listening to the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, or watching Inglorious Technicolor on YouTube. Uh, and remember to subscribe to our Instagram at The Simulation Nation, Twitter at Simulation VR, and our Discord server. Then join us next week for our Comedy in the Metaverse episode with the oldest running virtual reality comedy club, Fail to Render. Until then, stay plugged, my friends.